Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to the Who the Fuck podcast. Inquisitive, authentic, unapologetic. A safe space for self-exploration, questioning the status quo, and finding out who the fuck you are. Hey gang, thanks for joining us for the fourth episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. Our guest today is the audacious and fabulous Dustin Can, and we're going to be talking about coming out and how that has created clarity about who the fuck we are. Dustin has been one of the biggest supporters of my desire to launch this podcast, so I'm pumped for him to share his story about growing up in a conservative Christian home and how that ultimately led to meeting his husband and how his expectations and experiences have shaped him into the person he is today. So welcome to the show, Dustin. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hello, hello. Uh, Nikki, you know that I like to talk about myself probably a little too much. I'll try to keep it succinct. So, uh, grew up in Eastern Washington state at 18, needed something completely and dramatically different. And I'm sure we'll get into this, but, uh, that completely different for me was Memphis, Tennessee, uh, spent most of my adult life there. I'm back there again after four and a half years in sunny Tampa, Florida. Uh, and, uh, really, really glad to be home in the place where I found out who I was. Um, so yeah, glad to be here. Thinking about it in hindsight, do you remember the first time that you felt that you were attracted to the same gender? Because I remember very vividly the first time I had a crush on a girl was in fourth grade with somebody I used to play tetherball with. And I don't think I totally knew that that's what that was, but I knew that I felt some sort of attraction and some excitement around that. Can I distinguish between my thoughts on crushes and attraction because you know me like I'm perpetually crushing on pretty much everyone on earth and I can find things that I find interesting about them um but uh oh how graphic do we get here Jeez, Nikki. Oh, um, boy. I don't know. This is an explicit podcast, so you, you have options. But It, it is. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try to rein it in. So um, without getting overly graphic, um, for all you young whippersnappers out there that don't remember what it was like to be a child in the 90s, um, things that we determined we were attracted to that you can find today on the internet in copious volumes and such were a little harder to come by. So like people that I would interact with in school... I had all the normal crushes, girls, um, boys that you didn't talk about as much, but it's like, he's my best friend forever kind of thing. And when you're in fourth grade, that's, you can get away with being a a bit softer about it than you can be in a typical 16 year old kid. But for me, honestly, it was the Sears catalog. And I know it sounds horrifying, but the underwear sections in the Sears catalog, there's a lot of conflict that goes on in a young man's head as he's going, well, which one of these do I find more interesting? Uh, so it was legitimately that it was, there was a moment at which I was aware of, um, slightly unclothed bodies. And I was like, these are interesting. I shouldn't be seeing this. Which one shouldn't I be seeing more? Um, so it was, it was actually that kind of time in my life. And I would say, I don't know, boys develop later than girls, but maybe, 12, 13, about the time I was becoming aware that crushes could be more than just a, you know, we couple skate at the roller rink. It's interesting that you say that it was a Sears catalog for you. Uh, I think it's hilarious in its own right, especially because just the fact that it's a catalog, but also that it's Sears of all things. And it's awkward as hell that like my family was shopping out of the same thing that I was making existential decisions about. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, we all find our path. What a moment. (laughs) 
And I think the other thing is that for me, there's definitely a little bit of relatability, though it wasn't a Sears catalog. I also remember having a moment later in my teens where I was at the movie theater with one of my best friends, Christine, and there was an ad for this movie with Elizabeth Hurley and Brendan Fraser All right. for Bedazzled. We probably both liked the ad for different reasons. Exactly. So, so there was this massive cardboard cutout at the movie theater. And I just remember really feeling like, yeah, I, I like her. <laughs> I This is something that I feel very specifically. And I think I started to really under, understand it in those moments where, you know, it wasn't that I didn't find men attractive or guys attractive. I dated them even, but... At the same point in time, there was always this underlying impulse and something kind of a gut reaction telling me that there was more there than I was pursuing or even necessarily knew. Yep. And so it is very interesting to me to think about how when you are in the closet, you are kind of trying to figure it out in a way that really isn't obvious to other people sometimes. So in ways such as exploring your family's Sears catalog or noticing something publicly at a movie theater and then not saying anything to anybody, but really assessing that on your own. Well, I, I think I'd take it further. Sometimes we're exploring it in ways that we completely don't understand. So Fair. weird little side note that I didn't expect to get into, but since you brought up Brendan Fraser, so he went to, he did his undergrad at Cornish School of the Arts here in Seattle. Interesting. And I was always the artsy kid, not to be a walking stereotype in every way, shape and form, but wanted to do theater and music and all that. Uh, and I think a crush on Brendan Fraser that probably started with Encino Man. Yeah. Nice, good choice. Yeah, I was going to crush on Brennan, not on Polly Shore, but um, As you led should. to me thinking that like Cornish is a place I should maybe try to go. And it had nothing to do ultimately with the fact that I wanted to go to Cornish. It was, he's cute and I like that path. And and like it, it's years later sometimes that you look back at that stuff and you think, oh God, these are all the Lego building blocks that kind of created this thing. And I didn't know it at the time. Absolutely. I think it's so interesting to look at my own coming out story in retrospect. And in fact, I've been exploring that a little bit more recently because I had a conversation with my therapist about the fact that I feel like I was so entrenched in my coming out, just trying to get through it and really be okay with myself in that circumstance that I've never really looked back on it in a way that's objective and just kind of trying to understand that. I mean, you're in it so in the thick of it while it's happening. And oftentimes there's trauma that takes place as a part of the process, whether whether somebody did something as a part of the process or if we're just collecting our scars and baggage uh, and, and the like. And once you get through that door, you don't want to spend more effort on thinking about getting through that door. It's like, all right, the Band-Aid's off. Um, so now what does living my life look like? And so I, I think that's healthy to to look back at it and try to assess, like, what was this transition? And both for our own self-actualization and processing what our experience has been. But I think that uh, as we become the elder gaze, um, (laughs) God help everyone, uh, I I feel like we've got a bit of a responsibility to help coach people that are trying to figure out how to get through this uh, and help them realize that what they're going through is normal and it's not that surprising. It's still unique and it's still special and it's still their thing. Um, But if we can look back and figure out what we did that 
could have been done differently or that worked perfectly. We can help people relate to that. Yeah, I think that's uh, very well articulated. So thank you for sharing that thought. And I agree with you. I think it's really important as elder gaze, uh, hashtag elder gaze, (laughs) to um, really give our stories the airtime so other people can relate or learn from them. And I think if I had had that when I was younger, my experience could potentially have been a bit different. And it wasn't that it was necessarily a really bad experience across the board, but there were things that were really hard to do. And especially when you're coming out and you're the only person that really knows and you're trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I tell this person? How do I say it? What do I, what do I do? And you're also, at least in my case, I felt like I was trying to predict how people would react to determine if I should even tell somebody. And yeah. so you you hesitate a lot in those moments when you're going through it. And so I think that's what makes it interesting to consider looking back on is what were those decisions that I made and, and why did I make them the way that I did? Did you have people... So we... I think sometimes we project expectations on how people are going to react. Did you have situations where you thought somebody was going to react one way and when it all came out, so to speak, <laughs> um, it either was more of or less of a big deal than you would stir yourself up to think? That's a great question. I think that most of my friends that I told and I came out to the first person I came out to was my friend Paula. And it was my sophomore year of college. And I remember sitting with her and saying it and feeling really safe and not really worried about it. And it was just kind of like, finally, somebody officially knows. Um, Because at the time, my first girlfriend and I were like on and off seeing each other, kind of not really. I wasn't fully out. And so that was really relieving. And I think that she set a really good tone for my my hope of an expectation for people where I think I got some responses that were not as favorable as I'd hoped was actually from my parents. And they took a while to come around. It was definitely challenging. We had moments where we weren't talking for periods of time. You know, they're very much integrated into my life now and they love my wife, Holly, and they consider her family, but that didn't happen overnight. And so I think that effort that had to go into our relationship to be able to be who I needed to be, but also having an adjustment period for themselves was challenging. So I think that sometimes our expectations coming out are unfair to the people around us too. Like if, if a young gay kid spends 19 or 20 years of his life coming to some degree of term with who he is, it's kind of unfair to go to another audience that had 20 years of preconceived notions about what your future is going to be life and what's going to be like and be like, this is my new reality. Are you cool? Because for me, I I suspect that, you know, my mom probably thought grandkids and all of the things that come in a, in a more traditional or expected path. And in that moment, they're having to reprogram all of that. And even people that mean well still need a little bit of time to get there. I love that you just said that because I think that that's perspective that I needed reiterated to me. I'm feeling particularly sensitive to these things this week. And so I, I really appreciate that that's the lens 
through which you're looking at it because you're right. It is something where I spent, you know, 10 years of my own trying to figure it out and get myself to a place where I could even articulate what that was. And then they can't do that overnight. It feels like dropping a bomb on them in some ways. And so I get that. The thing that was great for me when it came to my friendships was so many people were like, I didn't know, but I'm not surprised. And as much as I don't want to take it as an insult, I, th- I think that it's like, well, good, I guess. For a minute, my family was shocked for a minute. And then my mom remembered that at three, I picked a pink bedroom and a rainbow bright bedspread. And again, walking stereotype here, but that's what I thought looked cool. And my room was covered in rainbows and I was dancing around being a character. And that's not to say a little straight boy can't do that. Express yourself, young man. But, um, you know, as you look through things as early as that, to all of my involvement in theater and the things that I connected with because there were other people there who were safe for me, even though I didn't really understand what that meant at the time. It's like, mama always knows. She doesn't know she knows until she looks back and she's like, oh God, yeah, yeah, mm mm-hmm. I think I even have moments like that for myself sometimes. And then I cringe a little bit where I'm like, oh, that was really obviously gay. I don't cringe. I've embraced it. But we've already established you're a bad gay. Yeah, I know. Obviously. (laughs) I'm like, I don't even know anything about this. No, but I I think that's actually a really great segue into um, the fact that making that decision to come out Hmm. is such an event, not just the actual telling of somebody, but deciding you, you said the analogy of like pulling the bandaid off, right? Like, I think that for a good period of time, my hand was on that bandaid ready to rip, but it was like, no, no, not yet. Or you're soaking it in warm water. Like I'm going to make this easier. Yeah. Mm. And it's like, no, you're not still coming off after recognizing that you were interested in men. Did you feel inclined to hide it or how long did you keep that secret for? Uh, I wish there was a clean line. Uh, so to set this up in context. So I grew up in Eastern Washington in a fairly conservative evangelical Christian household. Um, I say fairly conservative because my family didn't have a hateful bone across the entire group and everybody was welcome in our home. And that meant people of different races, even people with what I would now look back and suggest might be different gender identities and, and things that we didn't really have good language for at that time. Um, Parenthetically, I'm talking about this like it's ancient, ancient history. And if you're a 22-year-old millennial listening, it's ancient history. But um, my family was very welcoming and very loving. So there was never a moment where people in the house were saying derogatory or bad things about people that were different or other than us. But it was still, you know, a Bible-thumping, Southern Baptist-inspired Christian world. And I went to Christian school uh, for a time. My first Christian bands were... 16, 17 years old and so forth. Uh, And when I moved to Tennessee, I moved there to help plant a new Southern Baptist church and play in a Christian rock band. And how old were you when you moved to Tennessee? 18. Yeah, fresh, fresh out of school. Um, And this is what would have been fall of 2001. So like right on the heels of September 11th, we're already in an environment where people are thinking about people that are other than them or different or whatever. Um, But I moved to the South, fell in love with it for a million different reasons, Um, recognizing it's imperfect, but it's a good place for me. Got in the band, um, had a girlfriend move from Washington down to Tennessee as a part of this process. We were good Southern Baptist kids, so everybody lived separately and, you know, all of that, Um, which is an aside when you're a closeted gay kid. um, 
the Southern Baptist nature of like waiting till marriage is a really great tool to protect yourself. It's like, yeah, we'll, we'll do that later. Um, (laughs) But the church that I was on staff at and playing in a band, um, the lead singer knew um, a different kind of church, a Pentecostal church uh, that did things a little differently and brought me to uh, a Sunday night service to come hear something that's a totally different style. And I did. And I looked up on stage and there was a big choir doing super gospel stuff and a guy at the piano in a suit just hitting the crap out of the keys and singing like Michael McDonald. And internally I was thinking this, this man is bad for my Christianity. Um, and he swears that later, um, or later he sweared that sweared, swore, swore, swart. Um, we say weird things in the South, uh, that he had the same thought when he, when he saw me walk in, um, spoiler alert, 17 years later, he still likes me, but, um, that's when we met. And for me coming out, wasn't so much like I've decided that this is who I am and I've come to terms with it. And now I'm just going to tell people it was a somewhat tumultuous 12 to 18 months of back and forth, figuring out what mattered to me and living in this in-between place where um, I wasn't being fully authentic on either side of this decision, right? So church people didn't know that this thing was going on. uh, And this thing was like, when are we gonna make a decision? And it was like, there was a tension there. Um, For me, coming out wasn't as much a decision as it was kind of thrust upon me. Um, and this is, this is something that has really formed how I feel about coming out and how it should be someone's own to own the timing, the readiness, the method, all of that. For me, people started speculating and their speculation was based on, to be fair, um, pretty reasonable observations. (laughs) I'm starting to pull away. All of my dreams were coming true with the band and potential record deals and all this. And I was getting more and more distant. Um, and, and people started to speculate and, um, not knocking anyone's faith. I want people to go for what drives them and gives them purpose and makes them feel balanced. But in the part of the church that I was involved in, um, there's a little thing called a prayer circle and it's kind of Jesus sanctioned gossip. It's like, Hey Nikki, we need to keep this quiet, but someone's really been on my heart and we need to pray about them. And I I think they're struggling with something. Uh, but we need to keep this very quiet. And then Nikki turns to the left and is like, hey, Holly, um, there's this thing that's really been on my heart and we need to pray about it. This person seems to be struggling. And before you know it, everybody is talking about what they've made this assumption is going on in somebody's life. And my church circle in Tennessee and my church circle in the Northwest were like one degree of separation apart. So I was, I had a friend who I'd actually come out to, I'd trusted who called me and said, hey, there's this thing that's starting to go around and you need to be aware. Uh, And so on a Friday, uh, my broke ass um, bought a ticket to Washington to fly up and spend the weekend with my family and to come out to them. Uh, Because, you know, it's like, I'll be damned if they're gonna hear about this through a prayer circle across the country. I need to have this conversation with them directly. Um, So there's part of my damage. It's like, I wasn't ready got to do it. Um, and I think some of us go through it that way. Let's be real. Some people go through it way, way worse than that. Yeah. I think that that's a really compelling story though, because it is, I think, unique in and of itself where you felt like you could be outed in an environment where that also would potentially be frowned upon right <laughs> potentially <laughs> trying, sure. trying to be gentle with that by 103 percent of participants yes yeah. and so 
this obligation really just overtakes you because you, like you said, you want to own that experience. And so it's good that you were able to get your power back in that scenario in the sense of, okay, well, did you get to them before they... They heard also. It's a good assumption. You know, I don't tell stories that end up with me completely failing. I'll, I'll find a way to finagle it into at least a lesson learned. Uh, no, I did get to them first and I did it wrong, but I'm totally convinced there isn't a right way. I totally did it wrong too then. Yeah, I don't think it's possible. Like I spend the entire weekend at my parents' house and um, I don't know if this is going to be a shock to you, Nikki, but I'm not like a quiet, shy person who likes to sit in the corner and just look out the window. Um, I spent the entire weekend sitting in a rocking chair in the corner looking out the window and looking super morose. Like they were probably like, you're 19. Like what, what are you struggling with here? This is weird. Are you, are you doing the drugs? Are you smoking drugs? What's going on here? Now, um, and the day that I was leaving to go back to Tennessee, I still hadn't done it. And I was like, you wimp, you just have to, you can't, you can't spoil this. And so my stupid ass wrote a note to my mommy and I handed it to her while she was on a conference call and was like, I'm going to go take a shower. We can talk about this oh later. Um, fast forward. It was fine. She had some stuff she had to process. Like I said, you can't, you can't expect people to overcome in 10 minutes what it takes us potentially decades to understand about ourselves. Frankly, still working on understanding ourselves. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I did, I did get to them before, um, the well-intentioned but super damaging other people did. <laughs> That's good. I'm glad for you. Yeah. I actually have a somewhat similar scenario for my own coming out to my parents, though the note happened later in our relationship. When I came out to my parents, I had just started being more open with people at school. I had told one of my best friends from home. She asked me if I had said anything to my family yet. And I said that I hadn't. She asked if I had told my sister. I said I didn't. And she said, I really think you should tell her. You know, I think she would be supportive. I think it's important that somebody in your family knows. And I thought, yeah. But not like, you should probably tell her because I told her. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. No, God, that would be awful. (laughs) That would be super unfortunate. No, that's not what happened. Awkward for everyone. Yes. And so she you know, encouraged me to consider telling my family. And ultimately, I ended up telling my sister who was in college at the time, and I was home from break. And so actually, she might have already graduated at that point. Either way, she was living in Baltimore. And I decided to call her and tell her. And she was super supportive right out of the gate. And at the same time, she was relatively insistent that I tell my parents. And I don't blame her at all for thinking that that was the right way to be supportive. You know, she said, I will come up with you. Like, I will be there with you when you tell mom and dad, I'll support you through this. And so I said, okay, then I'll do it. And it was two days before I was going back to school from Christmas break. And so my sister had come up and she said to me to tell my parents that I wanted to talk to them after work. I said, Which doesn't strike fear into the heart of any parent. Right. Are you pregnant? Like what's, we don't do it this way. Exactly. And so I was apprehensive to say the least of taking that approach. 
for whatever reason, I decided to listen to her. And I, I do still regret that because it just made <laughs> With it, love. Yes. I, it just made it so much worse in the um, short term because basically what you just said happened, which was let me call my parents at work and say, I need to talk to you when you get home, but I'm not going to tell you what about. Full panic. Mm-hmm. Straight up. And so. To be fair. I I get why they would be uncomfortable. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And the fact that, you know, you're getting this call at work and it's like, well, why are you calling me to tell me this if you're just going to tell me something later, which was my concern in the first place. And when they got home, it was, you know, are you pregnant? Are you quitting school? Are you on drugs? Are you sick? And you're like, no, it's worse. I'm gay. Like, it's one of those things where it should be not even compared to these other circumstances. Yeah, we want to separate this from all of the negative things that could be the end of your positive life trajectory. Yes, exactly. But it's like, no, 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 all that bad stuff. It's not that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I'm not addicted to drugs. I just like women. Or is that a drug? <laughs> mm, age-old question. In its own, in its own way. Uh, and so when I told them this, you know, I, they were sitting down at the kitchen table, and I remember very little honestly about what I actually said to them but one of the first questions out of my mom's mouth was was it this person (laughs) knowing full well that this girl that I had met shortly after graduating high school who was my girlfriend for this period of time was my girlfriend once I came out she was like well you know all the more reason to just be disgruntled about it because she never liked her and then my dad have some more negative connotations yep and then my dad (laughs) is sitting there perplexed like but you always dated guys Mm. and you have james dean posters all over your room and i'm like james dean is a gay icon and with the dating the guys thing you know sure yeah exactly that was the expectation (laughs) that's what i was informed was the way to operate in suburban pennsylvania in the 90s and i don't know if you're anything like me like i'm not horrified by the idea of women i could actually see a scenario where if i had met the exact right person at the exact right time i would have given it a go on a long-term relationship um now if i had never explored this side of who i am worst case scenario i would have gotten married had a gaggle of kids and then screwed up all of their lives when i decided i had to figure this out later so bullet dodged but (laughs) yeah i totally agree with that because i i liked the guys i was dating i enjoyed them enough to want to spend the time with them that i was spending with them and i can appreciate an attractive human being across the board so thank you you're welcome (laughs) you're a 10 (laughs) always (laughs) so When I had this moment with my parents, it was really difficult for me to figure out how to navigate the conversation beyond their initial reactions because I didn't expect what they were going to say. I don't think I had an expectation of what would actually come out of their mouths, but I know for a fact it wasn't what did. Completely. (laughs) And so one of the things that happened was, you know, I came out to them and then basically the Next day, because we essentially paused is what happened. I, I, what I recall anyway, so we basically paused the conversation because I felt like this is a ridiculous reaction. You guys aren't handling it well, to your point. Like, I need you, you to, need process. to process this, <laughs> yeah. right? And I'm going to leave in 36 hours to go back to school. So let's just take a break on this. So the next day... And I've got a date with a super smoking hot chick, and I don't <laughs> want you to be in my headspace. Yeah, I don't have time for this right now. That would have been great. 
God, I wish I were as quippy and snarky back then in that scenario. It takes time. It does. I would say it now. (laughs) So when I told them this the next day, as I'm thinking they're calling me downstairs for dinner, I walk into what I felt was almost an ambush, which is an unfair word to use because they weren't aggressive about it. Intervention. It's what it felt like. And so they're sitting at the kitchen table again. And my mom always has yellow legal pads. So she... (laughs) had a list starting to understand more about your neuroses and how you need to be organized in your thought we, we inherit some of that so i'm like they're glad li- to know about the yellow legal pads there are lists everywhere you can't i, I can't even count the post-it notes on the wall no it's that's not even all of that that's nothing you should see the mind map exactly exactly <laughs> so my mom's looking at this yellow legal pad and it's like you know there's things that we want to talk to you about oh my god what also, I thought I was getting dinner. And so, Where's the pot roast? Oh, I'm getting served. <laughs> you are the pot roast. Yeah. And so I was looking at this. Not, I wasn't even looking at the list. I was really taken aback because I didn't know that this was A, going to be the conversation and B, just that it would be so meticulous in that here's this numbered list of things that we want to explicitly talk to you about. Is it like pros and cons or just like here's topics? Like were we making a comparison list to be like, which way do we go? Do we stay gay? Do we maybe change our mind? (laughs) Pro, women. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't believe it was a pro-con list. It was more... Here are things that you should be considering if you're going to tell people. So pause here. On one hand, I actually appreciate when people care enough to have the conversation. I really do. I agree. Um, Two, I love how people who have had less than 24 hours to process something like this are like, let's unpack all the shit you should have thought about for the last decade. (laughs) Because it's like, uh, yeah, I've thought of that. Yeah, and it's like, I've thought of this, but I also don't know how to say it to you. Mm. Part of it was, you know, their, what they would refer to as generational, and I think is a weak argument in any scenario, was the fact that, you know, I can't just tell people this. Life's going to be harder for you. Yeah, I can't just tell people this. Life's going to be harder for you. Imagine going into work. And I remember very vividly saying, do you think I walk into a job interview and say, hi, I'm Nikki, I'm gay. And that's what I lead with. This is just a subset of my personality and everything about me. Do you go into a job interview and be like, hi, I'm super straight and that's my sexual preference? Nice to meet you. Exactly. And I think that double standard I don't think you're supposed to do that unless you're going to be a sex worker. (laughs) And if that's what your parents are involved in, we don't want to talk about that. Exactly. (laughs) Let's not go there. (laughs) No judgment. No judgment. (laughs) That piece of it for me was really disheartening because Mm -hmm. it felt like they were telling me not to be who I am. Yeah. And even though I don't think that that was their intention, to your comment that you made, it's like... They thought that they were doing the right thing by me by trying to prepare me for people in the world who might not be okay with this. What they failed to realize at that time was that they were the only two people that were treating me differently. And it was predicated on the idea that they were doing this for the reason that they wanted me to be happy. And then eventually having to say to them, you know, this is my happy. Now that came years later after many a knockdown drag out fight. Yeah. That also happened via a note. (laughs) And yeah, so lesson learned, all you young gays out there. Don't do it. If you can do it any other way than via note, like work within the confines that are uh, that you find yourself uh, presented with. But if you can do it without a note, that's that's a winner. Um, So it's hindsight is also really an interesting thing. And I know that's really cliche, but 
looking back with almost two decades between then and now, I find it easier to allow people a little bit of grace to understand that um, that these are complex issues for anyone involved in the process, and particularly parents who have spent a lifetime with expectations, to have those shifted unexpectedly, whether they should have known or not, like that's neither here nor there, is tough stuff. And you know, there, there, I feel like it, it sounds like in both of our cases we had parents who just needed to process, but in the end, their love for us didn't shift remotely. Uh, and they had the best of intentions for us. Um, you know, having spent my adult life in the South, and I know this happens everywhere, but there are homeless children who were kicked out of the house by their parents at 16 to yeah. fend for themselves because they're living in sin. And that actually is something that I've thought about a lot over the years, and especially when I was feeling that there was turbulence in my relationship with my parents, was they were never going to be the parents that no. disowned me. But the, the, the queer youth homeless rates are terrifying. Uh, it's, you know, when, when I talk to people who haven't been affected by these types of decisions or don't think that they have because of the way that they perceive the world, um, and you know this, I'm prone to bouts of hyperbole and I like big words and crazy talk and audacious um, conversation. But literally, these are topics that people are dying from. You know, it's, it's stuff that kids... Um, struggle the process. Look, we, we came out of it successfully and we struggled the process. Thankfully, and deal with you know it. what right. I mean? Like, because I think that especially the time when we were coming out, because you're a couple of years older than me, but in general, we both grew up in the nineties. We both grew up in areas of the country that were not liberal. Certainly not what you would call progressive. Right. That's a better term, progressive. And so for that piece of it, you know, we've we've come out on top, so to okay. speak, and I feel good about that. But I also see that there was so much that could have gone differently, given oh. the time period and the nature of the locations where we were. And, and on the list of 742 and a half reasons why I'm glad that I came of age before social media documentation... An interaction, like the bullying that kids have to put up with on anything anymore. No doubt. You, you can, it doesn't take that much empathy to understand why it ends badly for a lot of kids, right? So I, I can sit here and, and complain about having my hand forced in coming out, and I shouldn't have uh, had that happen, and nobody should. I can complain about the shock and awe that my parents and my family and the people close to me had to process all of this stuff and not nearly fast enough for my comfort level. Um, but in the end, we were the lucky ones. I, I've got one friend, Casey, God bless him. I hope he hears this, uh, who was never in a closet ever. Uh, you know, he was uh, from the minute he came out, I, uh, like of his mother, <laughs> like, this is a gay kid. Helen Keller would know you're gay. <laughs> Aliens from outer space that are blind would know. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a gay one. Right. Like, and it's not a stereotypical thing. It's just like, he's always been who he is, but that is such an outlier. Yeah. That, that is, that is not our normal experience by any stretch. Let's put it this way. Up until a little while ago, there was so much more progressive thinking and the way that people are are behaving as far as the level of acceptance and things that we as a society want to support all human rights and be able to advocate on behalf of anyone regardless of their sexuality or gender or whatever it might be. And I am glad that we came out in a time prior to social media, as you said, for the reasons such as bullying, which you mentioned, because I lost my entire group of friends in seventh grade because they thought I was a lesbian. Joke's on them. 
And at the same time, young people today who are coming out are coming out in a world that is arguably much more ready for it. Yeah, well, I think it's um, let's go macro and micro, right? So I have hope because at a macro level, we are getting better and present political bullshit aside, I do think that collectively as a Western society, we are getting better and more able to deal with this. And when I interact with young people, they don't care. Yeah, it's amazing. They, they, they don't care in the same way that we thought they did. Maybe they never did, but but it's it's at a macro level, it's much better. The, the painful part as we get through the rest of this transition is at a micro level, the places where people face adversity are sharper than they were before. Right. It's a one thing playing smear the queer in 1992, uh, which is really just like, I don't know, tag me to tackle football or whatever. Um, you know, it, it, did people say smear the queer in the Northeast? I've never heard it. It actually sounds really aggressive. It does. I was curious. Saying those words out loud in 2019. That's intense though, but that's real. Yeah. Well, and yeah, no, that's, I might have to unpack that a little bit. But, Please do. But there, but there's, you know, there's, there's things where people would identify, um, when I was younger, as somebody's a little soft or somebody, he's definitely a theater kid or whatever. And you'd kind of know what was being said, but it was just sort of what it was. Today, the 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 sharper micro level struggle that kids have deals with cyberbullying. It deals with uh, maybe some of the current political climate where uh, because of the way their parents and, you know, some of our political leaders make some of this fear of the other a regular part of the dialogue. Some kids are just assholes. Um, parenthetically, some people are just assholes. So like maybe that's a lesson that it's okay to learn in some capacity as early as you can. Uh, but I do think I do think that as a society, we are moving the correct direction. Uh, and I, 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 I'm really happy for kids that are 16, 17 years old that feel comfortable having gay straight alliances at school and feel comfortable taking their family with them to pride parades and festivals and participating in this conversation that w I just didn't have that outlet. Oh, no. I, and honestly, I never would have been part of the gay straight alliance that they had in my high school because there were about four people in it. One person who was, I believe, straight and or is straight. And they were ridiculed because the assumption was, well, if you're part of it, then you must be. The concept of allies doesn't exist for kids. No, right? and it's very scary, I think, in that respect as well, which is that you are at the most awkward stages of your life. But everything sucks. I wouldn't, you couldn't pay me enough to be a teenager again. And no. thinking about the fact that I've known since I was about nine and really coming to the realization over the course of my middle school and high school years and finally meeting my first girlfriend right after high school and then coming out in college, like the the pace at which it happened by comparison to like what I knew and when I knew it and how I felt having this. Sorry, that was a so, dog snoring. Nobody's gassy here. <laughs> Nobody had tacos. Like what just happened? Real talk <laughs> on the What the Fuck podcast. Who the fuck? Get it right, Dustin. Sorry, maybe. So. That's what you get for playing me with red wine. <laughs> in retrospect, it feels like it was so much faster. What was actually yep. a timeline of years in my own life. Well, isn't that true with all of those big transitions? Yes. Looking back, it's like, oh, that happened quick. But really, especially in context of how old we were at the time, it was a huge chunk of our life. Yes. Focused on this thing. Yeah. And it's 
really a relief once you're out and you stop worrying as much about having to hide it. Yeah. For me, it took years for me to ultimately be out, out. I don't know about you. Was it like a a process or was it once you told your family that was sort of it? I don't think we ever stopped coming out. I think each new job that we go to, each new social group that we get involved in with different sides of families and people that we've known forever, I don't think you ever stop. You're right. And that's one thing that's a little different than what happens with sexuality when it fits into societal expectations and norms where it just doesn't get talked about. But at some point, what I do on the weekend and the evening is going to come up. Or at some point, at 37 years old, who I spend my life with, like that stuff's going to come out. Yeah. And I got to have that conversation again. And you get more comfortable with it. That's for sure. And you you give less of a fuck. <laughs> totally. Maybe that's just true with aging in general. <laughs> All of the above. <laughs> I do feel, though, that also one of the things that I think changed for me drastically was actually when I got married because even in those new situations where you're at work and you're speaking to new people and you're trying to explain you know what you're doing or where you're going on vacation with whom what's happening and I actually had started a new job right around the time I was getting married so there was just that in general where it was like oh you're getting married and it's like yep to a woman and that was probably like the last time I had to really come out in a way that was explicit whereas Once I was married, it turned into my wife. And that's not really disputable. Whereas if I say my girlfriend, it's 100% disputable because women- I mean, I talk about my girlfriend sometimes. Exactly. And women refer to their friends as their girlfriends. So it's, is she your girlfriend like your friend or is she your girlfriend like your lover? What had you meant by that? Yeah. And so then you have to all of a sudden pick apart your- language and be very specific about how you say something. And honestly, that's how I kept myself closeted for so long was just indirect pronouns all the time. They, them, they're. It's funny. People who haven't lived through that don't really recognize when it's happening. Oh, they have no idea, which is crazy to me. Right. Because I feel like I would pick up on a whole language. Well, you would because you done been there. Right. So there were there were two things that happened for me and I can't pinpoint them. What one of them. I can tie to a specific point in time. The other one is just something that sort of gradually happened. I used to think that I had to please everyone and that everyone had to be my friend. And I had to have this massive social circle, professional social circle, all of it. Uh, And with time, I'm beginning to realize that I'd rather have a smaller number of people I'm close with, but that I'm a lot closer with. Um, And I, I half jokingly say, I've come to the realization that I'm not for everyone and everyone's not for me. I love that you say that. I kind of mean it. Like, it took a minute to You're get right. there, but it's, there's how many billions of people on this planet? I don't need to be tight with all of them. And some people are just not my folks and I can wish them well, but not have to please them. So you talk about going into a new situation and talking about your wife. It's incumbent upon us as queer people to just be okay with talking about who we are in reality. And if that doesn't land right with somebody, there's other people for me. Yeah, It's okay. I don't got to please you. And it's more, I think in those situations something for the other person to process or handle or feel some way about than for us. And you can't control that. Right, exactly. And I that is something that is very hard, especially I, I feel with initially coming out. You feel like you have to be so intentional about everything that you say and be able to articulate what you're feeling in a way that society doesn't expect from everybody else. True. And so for me, like I, I talk about the, th- the thing that I, th- that happened over time, it's me getting more comfortable in my skin, not caring how people respond as much. Um, the part that was like black and white one day, it was one way 
the next day it was another, was with regards to my social circle. So you talked about changing jobs about the same time you got married and you found it easier after that transition to just be like, this is how I talk about my life. Yes. Um, Because that chapter, the page had turned, right? Um, For me, when I came out and... Spoiler alert, you can't be in a Christian rock band and on staff at a Southern Baptist church as a man and have a boyfriend or a husband. That That's not a thing that goes well uh, very regularly. We'll be gentle. Um, so for me, my entire social circle, my entire church circle, everything that I knew seven days a week was no longer a part of my life. My family was, uh, and a very, very select set of friends that came in the transition with me. Uh, but... Everything else, the band I was in, the job that I had, the people that I spent six or seven days a week doing things, ministry with, and so forth, was no longer a part of my life. So I had a very clean break. Was that your decision? Oh, golly gee. Um, So probably goes into some of my religious damage, but um, no and yes. I was a part in a part of the church where evangelical Christian church discipline is a thing. Um, and there's some scriptural basis for it that talks about when somebody is found to be um, making sinful choices or living in sin or, or breaking away from God's expectations and, and requirements and so forth, that when you find that out, you confront them um, quietly and um, you're there for them to help them repent and get better or whatever. And if they continue to engage in that behavior, you come to them with a smaller group of elders within the church to have the same confrontation, the same offer of support, uh, but also the same explicit declaration that this is not in alignment with God's will for your life. And it ultimately culminates when it's done by the book with standing on stage on Sunday at the pulpit, telling the entire church population that this person's sort of cut off until they get right, if you will. Um, And so it wasn't my choice because that was the direction that it would have gone. It was my choice and that I knew that. Uh, And maybe it's a matter of pride. Maybe it was youthful arrogance. Maybe it was just like the beginning of my don't give a fuck nature that I was like, I'm not going through that. I'm not going to subject myself to this process that I've seen crush people before. As nobody should, by the way, because yeah. that is such a traumatic experience for anybody Completely. who must go through and that. And it's not just sexual orientation. I've seen it happen to people that were struggling with substance abuse, with people that were um, struggling with any number of things. And, you know, you want to do some damage to someone when you should be showing them love. Find somebody who's struggling with substance abuse and mental health challenges and ostracize them. See how that goes, yeah. right? And so it's it's well-intentioned people that have been programmed to do things that ultimately can be really, really hurtful. And I wasn't going to subject myself to that because once I came to the realization that this is who I am, and I tell you what, if you could pray it away, I'd tried. I, I gave it I gave it an effort, right? And it's just like, well, that's not going anywhere. So it's once you come to peace with that, it's like, all right, well, this is how I'm going forward, and I'll not subject myself to that. So I had to I had to cut it completely off right away. I mean, I admire that because it must have been a hard decision for you, given that that was just so much of your life. In and you're looking at me like maybe it wasn't. It wasn't a hard decision, but it was uh, well. I'm trying to define or distinguish between hard and difficult. It it wasn't difficult because it was the correct decision and I knew Absolutely. it. And there was also no avoiding that outcome. Um, it was hard because I was surrounded by a lot of people that I thought really, really were my family and cared about me. Um, and I found out in this process that that was completely true as long as I fit in the box. Yeah. And if I don't fit in the box 
um, the love is, you know, quotes still there. What's well, conditional? But you know, they wouldn't say the love is conditional. They would say that the way that they interact is conditional, right? But being completely candid, it yeah. is absolutely bullshit. It's I complete mean, bullshit. And that's not to criticize religion in any way. It's yeah. more the application of a belief system that chooses to ostracize people for being who they are. If you want to use church speak, it's not the red letters that Jesus said that hurt people. It's the constructs that man puts in place around that and the way that people behave in the process that hurts people, right? You read the words that are attributed to Christ in the Bible and it's basically like, hey, don't be a dick to each other. Yeah. It's like, go find the people that are struggling and love on them. Yeah. The, you know, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the, the churchy people that are doing really great stuff, they're probably fucking up. I'm probably mad at them because of the way that they're, they're fake or they're using this to generate income or they're, whatever the case is. But um, the people that are on the outskirts, the downtrodden, the poor, the hungry, the, you name it, like, go be cool with them. And, and you look at Buddhism, you look at Mormonism, Catholicism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, like the thing that's common in all of their scriptures is don't be a dick to each other. Everything else we put on top of that and naturally screw up. <laughs> well, and, and then we turn into dicks to each other. Completely. That's our nature. <laughs> One of the things that I think is really incredible about you and your life and this whole path that you've gone down with your coming out and really deciding to live your truth is that you also met your husband in the church. Yeah. You kind of dropped like a little hint at this, I think at the beginning of the conversation, you know, spoiler alert, 17 years later, he still likes you, right? <laughs> Most of the time. Can't be all the time. I think the love is there all the time. The like fluctuates occasionally. Yeah. And, and when it does, it's my fault, I'm sure. <laughs> I'll just, I'll own that. I'm sure it goes both ways. No, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> what was that like for you meeting your husband? And, and do you feel that when you met, that was something that you instantly knew and that that was sort of a turning point for you in the church as well as with your coming out? Or do you feel that it was something else? Like, how did you really... I guess, come together in those moments. Well, I already told you that I basically operate with a crush on almost everyone at all times. So it didn't start with like, oh my God, we need a ring involved in this process. It started with a little heart flutter and a little, I'm impressed by this musical prowess and I like the way he carries himself and what a handsome dapper dude in that little suit there. All those kinds of things. And um, the period of transition between we've met each other and we're friends and we like each other and now we're roommates and then... That progressed in the way that roommates sometimes Roommates with it does. like air quotes or legitimate roommates before anything happened. Roommates for like a minute. Uh, <laughs> One whole minute. We got the keys, we opened the door, and that was it. We need another glass of wine to get into the extreme details there. But yeah, it, for a minute we were roommates, and then we spent a long time as, quote, roommates to the outside world. Friends, family, church members, all of that. Um, while we were figuring our shit out. Uh, and it took a minute to figure our shit out because there were conflicts for both of us. Yeah. Your husband, Tim, had not been out prior to this. Correct. And like, he and I are a little different in a couple of ways. Um, one, I already told you, I'm not completely horrified by women. 
I mean, aside from the fact that my best friends and the people that I'm most impressed with tend to lean female, um, but in, in terms of attraction and, and those kinds of things, um, he's like very much the opposite. Like he's, he's like, no, he's like, ew, it's, it's not right. I can't with that. Uh, and he's a good bit older. And when, when we met, um, he'd never really had super serious relationships with anyone. Um, he was married to his ministry and, and, you know, things that we say when we're trying to compensate for the fact that we're programmed to think that we're supposed to go one direction, but internally at our core, we're, we're really pointed the other way. Um, so it took a minute to figure out, um, one thing that he has going for him psychologically that took me a little longer is when he makes a decision, it's binary, like the switch flips and it's like, yep, nope. And we both grew up in church worlds where there was no lukewarm. It was, you buy cover to cover, hook, line and sinker, everything that's in here as, as you know, the holy and errant word of God, or you dump the thing. And for him, it was like, well, when I found a piece that I'm not for, I guess I dump the thing. Um, and he's got the ability to, to compartmentalize like that and move on. Um, so he was able to sever ties with the church in a relatively like even keeled manner. Yeah. Very logical, very, it's not a yes. So it's a no, like off he goes for me. I, um, I'm a little more emotional about things in general um, and um, tend to try to hold on to the stuff that I think is good. I also was right on the cusp of my dreams of like record deals and touring with my band and being a Christian rock star. And you can chuckle at that if you want, but um, it's right on the cusp of that, like just tangible. And, and so those dreams that were things that I'd worked really hard on were right there. And I knew I couldn't have both. So there was um, a little more of a gradient for me in, in terms of getting from one color to the next. But it felt like more of a trade-off. Well, I think all things in life are a trade-off, right? But it felt like there was something I was giving up more than just responsibility and work. For, for him, it was more like, this is another job I have to do on top of my other job. Uh, and there's some positive to it. But at the same time, if I don't believe it, I'm out. I'm done. And for me, it was like, yeah, that... But I also kind of want to go play that rock festival. Yeah, <laughs> and well, there's to... passion for you with music, so that's something that yeah, even separate from yeah. the the spiritual side of things, right? It took a little bit of time to get to the point where we um, had a holistic view of what this unit was that was us. Um, fortunately, we got there, and you know, I, I think if I could give anyone advice on what those transitions are like, is when you're in the moment, you feel like the things that you're losing. Um, are detrimental or they're so big or it's something that you're going to struggle to recover from. And the reality is the after is massive if it's wrapped in your truth. And especially for people who are fortunate enough to come out at a relatively young age, um, your whole life's in front of you. And I know, you know, all of the it gets better stuff that that we went through in the media a few years ago has, has sort of died down. But I think it's true. I agree. I actually was going to say that when you just made that comment is that it does get better if you are authentic, as you said earlier, and you are living your life with good intentions and for the purpose of fulfilling yourself and making sure that you are getting what you need emotionally from your relationships. I can't encourage people enough to be honest about who they are. Well, so so there's there's the rub, right? So the It Gets Better movement was really good and it hits you in the feels and it's true. 
but we've got a responsibility to take control of how it gets better for ourselves as well. So it, it can't just be this warm, fluffy marketing message and a blog post about somebody that's like, it sucked for me too, and it got better, and it's okay. Um, you know, if we're encouraging people who are going through this process to um, to come through it on the other side in a positive way, it's yes, it does get better, and you've got your whole life in front of you, and you have to take control over making those next decisions. So, and it's different for different people, right? I mentioned earlier that I, I don't think that coming out should be something that's thrust upon anyone, and it's a very, it, in my life experience, it's as personal a decision as can be made. And so you've got to do it when the timing is as right for you as it's going to be. Spoiler alert, it's never totally right. So like you're going to write a note and screw up somehow or something's <laughs> going to happen. We both did. But uh, you've got to take some responsibility to step out after that and say, you know what? I am going to talk about my wife. I am going to be real and I'm going to surround myself with people that can deal with that. One of the things about that too is that it is a responsibility of ourselves as people who don't follow this social norm to be transparent about who we are aside from our sexuality because I think that that is the thing that really helps normalize it. Completely. When you are around people who are straight or or gay, whatever, it really doesn't matter. The point is, is that we are all people. And when you spend enough time with people and you understand them more foundationally, this is such a, a small detail of who we are in the context of what our purpose here on earth is for most people. Like there are plenty of people who are just, you know, huge advocates or they've like created a life around the fact that this is who they are. Also awesome. That's your identity. Exactly. And so I think the part of the beauty in it is being able to say, this is how I really consider it in the context of all the other things you can know about yeah. me, which is I think why I joke around that I'm a bad gay is that I don't lead with that. And I've never really led with it because to me, it should be irrelevant. Like you were saying at the beginning of the conversation. Know, you might've led with it a little bit in some of your college photos <laughs> with your ball cap and your flannel. I never vocally lead with it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm totally with you though. And you know, one of the most real experiences that I can remember um, in regards to this topic is I was at a, a work event with a guy who is now one of my best friends on the planet. I love him. He's my brother. I genuinely love him. On paper, we should not be friends. Politically, socially, vocabularily, I sounded that out. Um, uh, all of the things we disagree on, but we were sitting at a work event once and getting into a conversation pretty early in our, in our working relationship. And he was struggling to understand different sexual orientations and, and different relationships like that. And I, I swear, I think that his programming was such that if a guy is gay, it means that he's like throwing ecstasy parties on his front lawn on Tuesday afternoons and recruiting 16 year old boys to join the club. Like, I, I think he wouldn't have said that, but I think his mind went to like the wackiest possible scenario. And going through this conversation, I kind of stopped him partway through and I was like, um, I said his wife's name. Um, I'll, I'll protect the uh, the guilty and the innocent alike. And I was just like, you know how you feel about your wife? That's how I feel about my husband. That's kind of all there is to it. And it blew his mind. And on on one hand, I'm like, oh, hey, like, how did that blow your mind? Right. On the other hand, it's like, we do have a responsibility not to just fit into expectations about what a monogamous or other relationship should look like, but rather to help people understand it isn't 
this crazy thing that you're afraid of that's just so different than you. It's like, I love this person. And that's sort of it. And it comes down to it being that simple at the end of the day is that love is love. And it sounds like, okay, you're just preaching everything that the human rights campaign and everybody talks about for, you know, the month of June. Which I am. (laughs) Of course. At the same time, we have spent centuries stifling who we are for the sake of everybody else's comfort. And I think that it's really important to really counteract that fear as much as you can when it becomes important for us to stand up and say, this is who I am. This is who I love. None of this makes me a bad person or a mean person. It does not mean I'm doing something wrong. It just means that I love this person and they love me. That's it. And it doesn't have to be complicated. And I don't want to be petty. Nikki just chuckled because I do like to be petty. But I don't want to be petty. But at the same time, if I can tell you that, if I can look you in the eyes and say, hey, this isn't that weird. And frankly, if you want to talk about like sexual stuff, I'm pretty boring. Like (laughs) this isn't that crazy. And then if they're still uncomfortable, that's on them to figure out. Like you need to question yourself. That is one of the things that I always got so annoyed about, especially when I was coming out to people when I was younger. I don't think people really ever ask me this anymore, but Never. It's because they're scared of your old ass. Never ask (laughs) anybody of any gender or sexuality, how do you have sex? Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Excuse me? Do you think I want to know how you have sex? And I'm filthy-minded, but I don't want to have that conversation. No, nobody does. (laughs) Least of all with, like, somebody who's going to ask you that. (laughs) Yeah, it's well, it is an interesting that happened with a lot of the um, religious right and family values movement is if you step back and look at it, who in this conversation is obsessed with who's putting what and where? It ain't us. We're just living our life over here, but you can't stop thinking about yeah. it, bro. And it, like, it's no, it's not that shocking. This a lot of the loudest voice, uh, voices uh, protest a bit too much. <laughs> That's, I, it's completely fair. And as I get older, I really think less and less about the way that people perceive it or how can I help them understand better and really just allowing the way that I live, like you were saying, the way that you live to speak for itself and just be who we are as unapologetically as possible and allowing that to be what is seen and appreciated by other people. Because I think that brings people into your world in a way that doesn't feel as preachy because I think on either side of the spectrum it can come off as like you should be this way or you shouldn't be this way and I I didn't really hang out with a lot of gay people in college I mean I tried I just didn't really like them and so it felt like sometimes that's more about those individuals but I I was feeling funneled into like well you should fit in with this group because you are too and it's like but I don't really care about that that's not how I'm defining my friendship so I think there's some of us that um have sort of the opposite reaction to wanting to be brought into that community. It's like, I've just spent the entirety of my life up to this point being forced into a community. I don't really want that now. Right. And I totally understand that there are people that identify with that and want to be advocates and want to be loud about this stuff. And like, I didn't post anything on national coming out day. Cause frankly, I got a pretty diverse set of people and I just don't need social media to be a place where there's drama in my life. Right. <laughs> so like, there's that component to it. And, you know, I, I think some of us are just like, don't categorize me. Yeah. I don't want it. And like, do I have gay friends and straight friends? Yep. Do I have primary either way? I really don't. It's like, I have friends. Exactly. Yeah. And and there is, for me, there's been a piece at letting people edit themselves out. If they, and, and I've done it both ways. I've, I've had people that don't think that I'm gay enough. Oh, yeah. And let's not even open the Pandora's 
box of let's talk about bisexuality and things outside of a binary spectrum and the way that bisexual people are usually are oftentimes treated within the gay community but there are people that i'm just not gay enough for them and they think that i'm a wimp about it you need to be louder you need to be more direct about it and at the same token i i think that that is as with everything we've been discussing, your choice as an individual to make. Completely. And you shouldn't feel pressure from any side with that. The only responsibility I have is to be honest about who I am. Exactly. Beyond that, everybody's making personal choices. And who I donate money to and um, things I choose to involve myself in, I don't need, I, I can have somebody educate me about an opportunity. Don't give me shit because you feel particularly compelled to do this thing and and I'm going a different direction. But I, th- I think it's it all comes back to, you know, in my mind, it comes back to my point of view around when and how somebody comes out. It's like, you have your journey, you have your moment, you have your place where you feel like you're comfortable and you've got the support structure around you. The challenge that I would give to people is to open up your mind a little bit in terms of what that support structure looks like, because there are people who feel alone in this process who are not as alone as they feel. And, you know, it's, it's also the way parents react, right? It's a huge amount of trust. At least for me, I, it was very, it was like a slow drip. Like every you're like, okay, I'm going to tell this person, I'm going to tell this person. And, and to the point where it was meticulous, realizing that that was all pressure that I ended up putting on myself totally, because I was afraid because I know the stories of bad things that have happened to people. I don't want to downplay those either. Sometimes no. it's bad. Yes. Agreed. And I'm very fortunate that that was never the circumstance for myself. But every time I came out to somebody, I had that fear. And yeah. even to the point where being in public and holding hands up until probably a couple of years ago, I would feel stressed out and uncomfortable and worried. We live in the South. We still don't yeah. do a lot of that. I mean, in, Se- in <laughs> Seattle, it's a lot easier. It's like super lesbian friendly. Uh, yeah. In Ballard. Come yeah. on. It's going to be OK. So now that we are out, we're married. Jazz hands. Living our lives as true to ourselves as we both feel we can be. It's, I think you said about 20 years after you came out. I think I'm like 15 or 16 years. Man, time flies. Time flies when you're queering about. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you feel now socially, spiritually, and professionally with really owning who you are? I'm going to work backwards from there. Professionally, I feel great because I've got, you know, I've worked really hard. I've got a reputation and a network and people that I connect with and my work speaks for itself. Um, So when I get a job and decide to go to a place, I can go into that with confidence in my ability to deliver the work product, Um, which if you don't have that and you have to complicate it with perpetual coming out, that's just you're adding to things that give you stress. Um, I'm also really fortunate that the places that I've worked are super progressive and accepting. And, you know, the place that, that we're at now um, is kind of half gay. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's sort of not that big of a, what it's I mean, I, don't even, t- I don't even think about it, it. It's a positive thing. So um, I've been fortunate. And look, not everybody's that way. Some, especially in the South where I live, sometimes people work for organizations that it's an uphill battle and those are the opportunities that they got. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want to downplay that. But professionally, I, I, I feel pretty good. And I feel like, being able to be out has taken an extra level of stress that I could have and just that's gone away. So I can focus on being my best from a professional perspective. Definitely a relatable statement. Yeah. And I do better work because of it. There's an advertisement, everyone. Let people come out because they'll work better for you and make (laughs) you more money. Do you need more productive employees? (laughs) Yeah. Just let them be gay. It's fine. Um, 
The spiritual side of things, huh? That one's a little more complicated. Um, religion died for me completely um, in terms of structured religion. Almost immediately. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, it was that thing where it's, it's like, this is a core part of who I am. And it also is a claimed core tenant or, uh, you know, belief that that's wrong and it's going to send me to an eternity burning in hell because that seems like something a loving, understanding God would do. Um, but, um, so for me, that organized, structured religious experience that I had grown up on, that piece of it was dead to me. Um, I would never go so far as to say I'm an atheist and I don't believe in, if not a higher power, a thing, a force, an energy, something that connects all of this stuff. I will say uh, that I know that there are things that I'm never going to have the answer to in this life. And I'm at peace, not spending the rest of my life trying to find an answer I can't get to. Um, and again, like I said, most of it that I've read is don't be a dick. And um, I feel like that is a decent guiding principle. Um, and, and sometimes I struggle. Sometimes I'm a dick. We it know happens this. to the best of us. It happens. And the mediocreest of us. Um, but like that's that's kind of where I am from, from a spiritual perspective. Um, I think that there's probably something that connects us all. And, and that's what I'm working with. Um, I also am more at peace now. I used to be a lot more bitter. I'm more at peace now with letting people have their faith and embrace the things that work for them and believe in the things that they want to believe. Um, so long as in return, they're not being a dick to me about it. Personally, I feel like I like me. You know, I, I like the, the me that is um, able to just be honest about this stuff. Uh, and again, that realization that I'm not for everyone was really, really freeing because I used to think that. And I think a lot of times we get trapped up in that. And you've talked about like some of the things that give you anxiety and getting spun up about something that only you are freaking out about. And this everybody happens else more often than not. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I'm being gentle. But, you know, it's, it's that same thing. It's like, you know what? I'm going to stop projecting on other people an expectation that they're going to accept this. And there's enough people out there that if I'm not for them, it's cool. Um, and I think that that was, that was a big realization for me personally that gave me a lot of peace. So I'm feeling good. Come out, come out wherever you are. <laughs> Those are really great responses. And it gives people a lot to think about too, because these are moments that we can't get back. And so the more that you are stifling yourself and hiding yourself, the more you're taking away from your life. And for whatever reason, you know, we're here and we need to make the most of it. And so if being who you are requires that you come out and you own that, the fear and the stress that accompanies that at the time I think is far outweighed by the benefits that you just described, which is that you become not only more authentic to those around you, but to yourself where your confidence grows because you are not as worried about maybe people finding out or judging you in this way, or you are feeling more prepared to have certain conversations that historically you might have backed away from because you're more impassioned about it and you're ready to promote the goodness that can come from your life if you come out. I think before you make the decision to just do it, you think you understand how much pressure you're putting yourself under or that you're under um, through external means. You can't really know until you let that burden down just how heavy it was. And it... it 
plays itself out in really big ways. It also plays itself out in what seem like small ways, filtering every response you give to people to make sure that it's not going to open up this thing and expose your shame and your horror and your thing you're trying to hide when that's no longer a part of the way you interact. It's, it's just the beginning. Yeah. It's a really incredible feeling. And I think you articulated that well, which is that this weight that is lifted is just so great that you honestly can't even imagine it until you're down the road, looking back at it like we are right now. And that's before you even start dating. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, Well, that is all for today's episode. Dustin, this has been super insightful, really awesome to learn more about you in this context, because we've had this conversation very loosely a couple of times, but it's been really great to just hear your story and also your promotion of just a healthy outlook at this and trying to figure out how we as a community can come together and help support other people who have gone through these experiences. So thank you so much for joining. I can't wait to have you on again. I would love to come back again. We've even already started brainstorming some fun opportunities to do so. I know it's going to be amazing. (laughs) Well, gang, that's all for this episode of the Who the Fuck podcast. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to Dustin Can for joining me today. Make sure you subscribe to my podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your other preferred podcast platforms. Visit whothefck.com and share your email address to receive important podcast updates. Or if you're interested in being a guest, email me directly at nikki at whothefck.com. Until next time.